Thank you. Have a seat for just a moment. And here we come. We, we are praising God and, and declaring that he is glorious and all he has made is glorious. And it is true. Um, how, however, it's also been a, a difficult week in the world, has it not? Uh, it difficult is such a tiny word for what it's been this week. Um, you know, we've had uh, shootings. We've had massacres. Um, we've had bombings in other parts of the world. We've had... Um, a, a terribly powerful hurricane. It's, uh, I just can't imagine what it would be like to, to know someone who's been uh, killed this week in one of these incidences. They all seem so senseless, so pointless. There's all kinds of things we can say about this. Uh, some of it we'll get to later, and some of it's just our job as a church to talk about all year long. But now's really not the time to try to sort it out, I don't feel like. Um, and now is the time to pray. We can do that in good conscience. We can, we can pray for those who are injured, who are, have lost a loved one. We can pray for our world. We can pray for ourselves. We can renew our commitment to be part of sharing a message that changes the world into a world where these types of things aren't acceptable and, and not the way we address our, our anger. A, a message that frees us from hatred. That's the best thing we can do today, the most honest thing we can do. I don't have a lot of flowery words um, or a flowery prayer, but I think uh, simple prayers are, are needed at this time. So let us do that. Let us, let's pray together for, for people and for our nation and our world and, and ourselves. Father, we come to you at the end of a tragic a week, in some ways a, a tragic couple of months. Lord, we've, we've seen people lose their lives. We have seen uh, religiously and racially motiv motivated massacres. We have seen natural disasters. And there's probably much, Lord, that we have not seen. We pray this morning for those who survived but were injured, maimed, that you would bring them healing. We pray for those who have lost a loved one or many loved ones. We know you are near to the brokenhearted and we pray you bring them peace. We pray for our leaders and those whose duty it is to protect us and, and maintain order and what a weight they must feel to make it all stop and what a powerlessness they must feel as they realize they probably cannot make it all stop. We pray you would comfort them and give grace to them. Pray for ourselves and for all who live in fear, all who grapple with anger and rage and hatred. 
Lord, we renew our commitment this morning to spread the good news of Christ Jesus, a message of forgiveness, of loving our enemies. These are the things that will heal this, nothing else. Forgive us for ever thinking that anything else but being like Christ Jesus was ever going to solve anything. We pray for peace. We pray for understanding. Give us, Lord, the strength to change the things we can change and the courage to accept the things we cannot change and the wisdom to know which is which. It is the name of Christ Jesus, our King, we pray. Amen. Let us stand together. Again, as we worship, we're renewing our commitment to these words. We're renewing a commitment we once made to bring others into this praising community. If everyone praised God this way, that would change things. If everyone thought about their enemies the way Christ thought about enemies, if everyone uh, thought about themselves the way Christ thinks about us, if we thought about others, the way Christ thinks about them. That would change things. So as we pray, and as we praise, let's praise for ourselves, let's also praise in hopes, in renewing our commitment to bring this message to the world. That's what the church is for. Amen? Let's praise exuberantly. Good morning again, everyone. We do have our work cut out for us this morning. These are the chapters, uh, verses rather, of Genesis that I skipped last week because there were kids in the room. (laughs) So uh, get ready for that. Um, These are uh, five verses we're going to start with. Some say, and I agree, the five most difficult verses in Genesis. Some say the five most difficult verses in the Old Testament. Mm, You decide. But here they are. Genesis chapter 6. When people began to multiply on the face of the ground and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that they were fair and they took wives for themselves from all that they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in mortals forever, for they are flesh. Their days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And afterward, when the sons of God went in to the daughters of humans who bore children to them, These were the heroes that were of old, warriors of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts were only evil continually. All right, in five verses we get this story told that someone called the sons of God went, came to earth, took daughters of men or humans as their wives. They had children with them, and there were these, they were these heroic beings called Nephilim. This was offensive to God, who then says that's the last straw and prepares to wipe human, the human race from the earth. Okay. Uh, how many of you have heard of the Nephilim before? Have you ever heard this word before? Quite a few, especially, uh, I bet, if you follow fantasy or science fiction, you hear Nephilim bandied about all the time, right? The Nephilim get mentioned in The Mortal Instruments, The X-Files, Supernatural, Magic, The Gathering, Diablo, Assassin's Creed, and Tomb Raider. 
The Nephilim get mentioned in more supernatural romance novels than I was able to count the titles for. Here are just a few. (laughs) The Tempting, Seducing a Nephilim. Take Her to Heaven. I have a few more here, but my filter tells me not to read them in church. (laughs) So, men may be pigs, but you women sometimes are chillingly weird to me. (laughs) Fifty Shades of Grey, enough said. All right. The History Channel has all but decided that every ancient civilization was built by extraterrestrials who came in flying saucers and that this verse in Genesis describes the coming of aliens who the Hebrews called sons of God. All right, well, we're obviously not going to talk about fantasy and sci-fi this morning or romance novels or aliens from outer space. Uh, We've got to work with our scriptures this morning. Um, So here we go. We're just to start with just trying to translate this passage. We have two phrases that are difficult to translate in this passage, even though it's only four or five verses long. And the first is one of the key phrases, the sons of God. Who are these Who are these beings? You have a couple choices. One is that they were uh, humans who falsely claimed to be sons of God, as many kings uh, did back then. The other trans- possible is that they are rebellious, evil angels. All right. If you want to choose that the sons of God are uh, humans who falsely claimed to be the sons of God and then took any women they wanted to be their wives, you are right in line with ancient history, right? Back in the ancient times, if you were a king and you didn't claim that you were descended from God, you weren't worth anything, right? Think of Pharaoh. Think later in history of Xerxes. All these guys said, I'm the son of God. Now give me your women. And so that's, uh, that is, uh, uh, you're good with history. However... This phrase, sons of God, is uh, only used in Genesis and one other book of the Bible, Job. And when you go over to Job and look at who the sons of God were, it's, it's fairly clear that they are angels. All right, so let's go with the angels. If they're angels or fallen angels, some sort of demonic type creature. Um, now you're good with how it's used over in Job, although is how a word used here and how a word used there automatically make it the same? Well, it's better than it not being the same. Uh, However, now you've made a very strange story, right? Angels coming to earth, human wives, super children. It's not talked about anywhere else in Scripture. Uh, This is a story that that Scripture has chosen not to comment on very much. Perhaps Scripture has been wiser than me this morning. Okay, tough tough key phrase. Next phrase that's hard to, to uh, translate in this passage is then the children that they have. It calls them the Nephilim, which if you take the Hebrew words apart, you can, roots, you can kind of get the fallen ones. That doesn't quite help us, the fallen ones. Okay, were these children that they're having big, tough warlords, or were they, as some of your Bibles say, if you're following along, somebody following along, what's your Bible call them? Giants. Anybody have a translation that says giants? That that's what a Nephilim is? All right. Well, gi- uh, excuse me, giants come, I don't know what that sound was. <laughs> it was impressive though. Um, giants comes from uh, the Greek version of the uh, Old Testament that w- it was formed uh, shortly before Jesus' time. And where they got that was because Nephilim is only used one other place in the Bible. That is in Numbers. So let's flip over there. Now in Numbers, you remember the, the, the Hebrews sent spies into the promised land and then they uh, brought back a report of what the, you know, can we take this land? 
And the spies said, no, we can't. It's super dangerous. And here's what they said. So they brought the Israelites an unfavorable report of the land that they had spied out, saying the land that we have gone through as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. All the people that we saw in it are of great size. There, there we saw the Nephilim. The Anakites come from the Nephilim. And to ourselves we seemed like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. So these spies come back and say, there's these big Nephilim over there, and they made us feel like grasshoppers. And so the Hebrews translated, well, Nephilim must be giants. Now, did it mean giants, or, or were these guys just exaggerating because they really were super afraid to go attack the promised land? Did they mean they're big light giants? It's just, it's just one verse. So there's not enough there to tell what to do with this word. Big, scary warriors or giants. I don't think there's enough to decide either way. So now we've got to take this four verses with two phrases that are hard to translate and decide what to do with it. I am going to give you four options to consider. Option one, completely believe the passage with evil angels and human wives producing giants for children. I can actually support you in doing that. In the New Testament, if uh, angels can announce the birth of Jesus and demons can possess the souls of people, then to have these sons of God intermingling with humans and producing superhuman children isn't, isn't that much more far out. I'm about 30% there with this passage myself that this is what it meant to say. If the giants we're talking about could be more like Goliath-sized giants, like nine feet tall people, um, which for a four and a half foot tall culture would be super terrifying. And, uh, and we do have, have had nine foot tall people even in, in this century. Option two. Choose the alternate translation that they were, they called themselves the sons of God. They were ancient kings falsely passing themselves off as divine. And then the children they had were super great warriors. That translation makes perfect sense with ancient history, flows right in. But you'll have to be honest about what you just did there because the word sons of God isn't really used to mean that anywhere else in scripture. So you have chosen a translation that is rather convenient. I used to support this view of the passage completely as the explanation, and I've slid back now to about 40% on this one. Option three. Believe that this story is a myth or a parable about angels and giants, which the Hebrews have retold in our scriptures in order to tell us about human sin and the grace of God. I can support you if you want to do this with this short passage. So long as... Each time you come across something that's supernatural in the Bible, you make your decision based on the genre of the writing. So that you look at this, you say, well, this is very much like a folktale about angels and giants. And the Hebrews put a lot of this sort of stuff into Scripture to teach us about the sinfulness of humanity. However, I would want to warn you that it is not Christian to uh, slap the label myth on every supernatural occurrence in the Bible just because you find it difficult to believe to slap that label on the exodus, on Jesus' healings, on the resurrection of Jesus himself. So at that point, if you're going to do that, you might as well just be a deist, you know, who believes there's a God, but he doesn't ever do anything, or an atheist. Which brings us to our fourth option. I'm not really recommending this, but it is an option. You can be a deist or an atheist. 
You can believe that God never does anything outside the natural world or that the Bible is filled with fiction and, and here's some of it. I can't go there with you. It's, of course, a choice you're free to make. It's a journey into a very different kind of life and I can't be a guide to you on that journey. I'm sure there are other options of what to do with this scripture uh, that I haven't thought of. Okay, now this is the second time in a month you've been subjected to uh, me saying, well, here's a couple options what to do. You just take your pick. Um, This is not our normal mode of operation with the scriptures, I assure you. So why didn't I just pick one? Why didn't I just tell you what to think uh, from one of these options? Say, this is going to be the Lakeland line. Option one or whatever. I want to explain to you why I'm not doing that. Uh, First of all, this is not very many verses to work with. Four verses is not very much. One of those guys down in, uh, you know, Cozumel could totally paint this onto a chili bean and sell it to you. I mean, it's really, really short. Um, The next thing is, although it's only four verses, it's two key phrases are very hard to translate. They're not used elsewhere in scripture. Other scriptures don't comment on this story, so you can't even try to help scripture help you understand another scripture with this one. Third reason is this is a very strange story. And it's not mentioned or commented on anywhere else. And so the reason I can't push one of the options on you is I can't push something on you. I'm not decided on myself yet. What I can share with conviction is what I think this passage means. What purpose it serves in our scripture and what the point is. I feel very comfortable with that. So why don't we come out of the classroom and let's go in and just do some preaching. Okay, first thing I think that we can say about this passage is that this is a story about the growing evil of humanity and God's decision and promise to love us even though we make ourselves evil with sin. This weird little story comes in a block, which is Genesis 1 through 11, of a lot of stories strung together, which is basically everything that happened before there was an Israel. It's Genesis 1 through 11. And, and I, I think of it as the prologue to the Bible. I love prologues. I love fantasy and sci-fi movies. If you scroll up something in front of a movie, I'm in. I love all that stuff where it's like, here's everything that happened before so that you can understand what is about to happen. I love that stuff. So I think Genesis 1 through 11 is a prologue to the story of the grace of God about to unfold. So let's have a little fun here. I'm going to recite from some of of my favorite prologues. And uh, as soon as you know what it is, just shout out where it came from. Are you ready? Once upon a time, in a faraway land, a young prince lived in a shining castle. Beauty and the Beast! Somebody was on it. I had like six more lines of that thing. (laughs) Beauty and the Beast. Well done. Okay, try this one. Chapter 1. Buttercup was raised on a small farm in a country (laughs) (laughs) Princess Bride. Isn't that a great beginning? (laughs) I love the Princess Bride. Okay, this one I have to get physical with. Ready? It's a period of civil war. Rebel spaceships striking from a hidden base have won their first victory against the evil galactic empire. It's Star Wars. Star Wars, well done. All right, prologues. Love them. Now let's get serious for a moment and read the prologue to the story of everything God's going to do. Genesis chapter 6. When the people began to multiply on the face of the ground, the daughters were born to them. 
uh, and daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that they were fair and took wives for themselves of all they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in mortals forever, for they are flesh. Their days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went in to the daughters of humans who bore children to them. These were the heroes that were of old, warriors of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth, and that every inclination of their thoughts, of their hearts, was only evil continually. Next thing we can see in this passage is that evil grows. You follow the trajectory of Genesis, but Genesis is basically saying, now, given the opportunity, powerful men would enslave women, or if we had the opportunity to sleep with angelic beings, would we try to do it? All our romance novels say, yes, yes, we would. All right. And so evil grows in the world one form or another. It's getting really, really wrong. As I read this passage, I can't think of about about how it is predicted so well how evil grows in our world. The sons of God, powerful beings of one kind or another, took women as their wives. When I think about powerful women being taken, or powerful men taking women, I can't help but think in the last few years of all the human trafficking rings that have been broken up in our country. One of them in Nevada was run by a sheriff's department. A sheriff's department capturing women from other countries, keeping them in storage containers out in the desert and bringing customers out to abuse them. Uh, another, another of these human trafficking rings, I couldn't figure out why it was never investigated because the one running it was an agent of the Department of the Homeland Security. As I read about these great warriors spreading violence over the world, and I wrote this message months ago, I didn't know this week was going to be this week, but I I think of all the ISIS terrorism and the bombings and the videotaped beheadings and, and, uh, and now the massacres. Evil grows. I wonder how God cannot be fed up with us. How can he not destroy this world that has strayed and is straying so far from everything good and decent that he made it for? This is the story of Genesis 1 through 11. Adam and Eve turn away from God. Cain murders his brother Abel. Uh, The seventh son of Cain, Lamech, starts killing people if they just kind of get in his way. And he takes two wives, so now polygamy starts in. Uh, Here, the sons of God take the daughters of earth. Now, next, we're going to have the flood. And then after that, more until we get to Genesis 12. God makes man good but free to choose, and man chooses evil continually, and evil grows. The next thing we can see in this passage is that God sees all evil. Verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. This passage assures us that God sees it. And so our next question is, Uh, So when we ask, you know, is there a God who knows what's happening in the world? This passage says, yes, yes, there is. Then why doesn't he rescue us from it? That's a question that's been asked since the dawn of time. Dawn of time question. If God sees all this evil, why doesn't he stop it? 
And uh, Ravi Zacharias is a Christian apologist who has to answer this every time he speaks. Somebody will ask this question. And so uh, I believe uh, he had just told a story about someone being shot during a genocide. And uh, so one of the questioners asked, well, if God saw that evil, then why didn't God make that gun not work or stop it or something like that? So I I thought his answer was good. Uh, This was shared with me, and I wanted to share it with you. You stated that God was watching. God watched the gentleman pull the trigger. If God was watching, why didn't he make that trigger not work? Why didn't he make that poor individual just pass out while he was digging the grave? Uh, I believe Sam Harris would ask that type of question and demand an answer. Yes, I appreciate that question. Um, The playing the devil's advocate, you said that why didn't God keep the man from pulling the trigger rather than allowing the man to pull the trigger and then watch over him and uh, bringing about some kind of judgment? I would say this to you, that the supreme ethic that God has given to us is the ethic of love. It is the peak of all intellectual and emotional alignment this thing we call love, which places value upon the other person of worth and as something to be protected. But you can never have love without intrinsically weaving into it the freedom of the will. You cannot have love without the freedom of the will. If you are compelled by some machine to a certain decision, you can never love. You can comply, but you will never be choosing to express that sentiment and the reality of love. If love is a supreme ethic, and freedom is indispensable to love, and God's supreme goal for you and for me is that we will love him with all of our hearts and love our neighbors as ourselves, for him to violate our free will would be to violate that which is a necessary component so that love can flourish and love can be expressed. If you're asking for God to always stop the trigger, why not God stop everything else? Next time you hold a cup of boiling water, he makes it frozen water instead. Next time you're about to cross the street and you're gonna be hit, he pulls your leg back. What you're asking for is a different entity than humanity. As wonderful as it may seem that in stopping that, you think he is protecting you from that which is destructive. The greatest denial that you're asking for is the freedom of your will to be able to choose and to love God with all your heart and all your soul. When you've got love as the supreme ethic and the freedom of the will to choose that love, all of the other contingencies come in and can become explained why it is possible to either choose or to reject so that love can ultimately reign supreme. If you want compliance and, a mechan- and some kind of a mechanical response, Your question itself will self-destruct. You're asking the question because you're free to ask it, and you're free to ask it because you're free to love. And when you love him, in spite of all of the contraries that you see around us, you're trusting him for having the supreme wisdom and the knowledge to ultimately bring a pattern out of it all. We think, for example, we know so much. The story is told in Mideastern folklore of this man who lost his horse that ran away. And when the horse ran away, the neighbor came to him and said, you know, bad luck, isn't it? 
your horse is gone. He said, what do I know about these things? A few days later, the horse came back with 20 other wild horses. And the neighbor came and said, amazing. It's not bad luck. It's good luck. You've got 20 more. Man says, what do I know about these things? His young son is going and taming one of the new horses. That young horse kicks him and breaks his leg. The neighbor comes and says, terrible, isn't it? Your son's leg is broken. Bad luck that these horses came. The fellow says, what do I know about good luck and bad luck? A few days go by and a bunch of thugs are coming, looking for recruits to join their gang. And they're looking for all the able-bodied young men. And they're about to pick this young man, but find out his leg is broken. And they say, we don't want him. We're going to move on to the next house. So the man comes and says, good luck, isn't it? Your son's leg was broken. In one little series of episodes, we don't know what lies ahead. Why don't you wait till you stand before God face to face and you will find out there were reasons why he didn't stop that trigger so that you will see the heinousness of evil and see the majesty of love and good managing to navigate yourself by the, as the pilgrim's progress to come to the <laughs> celestial city. God sees this evil. Does he feel anything? Our passage says yes, but I want you to strap yourselves in because this is, this is quite shocking. And the Lord was sorry that he made humankind on earth and it grieved him to his heart. What is the one thing as a child you never want to hear? I'm sorry you were ever born. Most devastating thing you could say to a kid, I'm sorry you were ever born. And there it is in verse 6. I read so many theologians who said, this verse is a theological impossibility. Because God already knows what is to come, and therefore God cannot regret a decision, and he cannot be brokenhearted about it. Any of you who are parents to older children know that those full theologians are full of it. That has absolutely you know, no basis in reality, that knowing what's going to happen means that you won't regret something later or feel sad about it. The moment I decided to have kids, and this is, this is one of the main reasons I struggled so hard with the decision on whether or not to have children. The moment I decided to have kids, I haven't even had them yet. The moment I decided to have them, I knew that someday they would get into trouble. And not a little trouble, a lot of trouble. Because that's what kids do. Even knowing that, when it happened to me, I was shocked by the magnitude of it. Whatever I had imagined would happen someday, I had imagined it too small. I cried for three straight days continually. I wanted to stop eating, but I knew that's how you go really crazy, so I didn't do that. I slept four hours a night for two weeks. Any one of you who had seen me behaving that way could have said to me, stop acting like that. You knew this was going to happen. But knowing what's going to happen doesn't take away the emotions when it does. God feels emotions when you and I sin. Didn't God know I was capable of sinning? Didn't he look down my path and see the evil I was headed into? Yes, doesn't matter. Still breaks his heart. 
And when I have sinned and I have broken God's heart, I pray for mercy because I know from this passage also that God judges sin. Verse 7. So the Lord said, I will blot out from the earth the human beings I have created, people together with animals and creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry I have made them. What did the animal and the creeping things and the birds ever do? Why are they roped into this? I answered this for the kids last week, but we'll say it again. Because we've got to get present with this, folks, and that is that we are all tied together, everyone. We do rule creation. This was given to us, ours to take care of. We may be terrible rulers of it, but we are rulers nonetheless. And creation is bound to us. In just the same way, for those of you who have children, that your children are bound to you. If you don't take care of yourself, your children suffer. That's not fair, but that's the way it is. Because your children are bound to you. You have a responsibility to them to take care of yourself. Just, and we have that same responsibility for this creation. We have the same responsibility to follow God and manage this world the way he would or it will suffer. Unfairly, but that's the way it is. If you don't believe me, just take a few moments anywhere you like today as you're driving home today to look around and see what our laziness and our greed is doing to the natural world. We really aren't the individuals we wish we were. We are tied together. Our sin affects everyone and everything. But just as God is poised to judge, right on the heels of twice saying, I'm sorry I ever made this sorry world, a little grace creeps in. Verse 3, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in mortals forever, for they are flesh. Their days shall be 120 years. A little grace period. I'm not going to stay with these humans forever. I've had it. I'm going to give them another 120 years. See what happens. Then another grace creeps in. Verse 8, But Noah found favor in the sight of God. Another translation says, Noah found grace in the sight of God. Another translation says, Noah found mercy in the sight of God. Noah found the gift he didn't deserve in the sight of God. God always makes a way out. He's going to make a way out for humanity because God always hopes. God always hopes. God hopes for you and for me. He gives second chances. He gives third chances. He gives grace periods to see if it will turn around. That's the reason these words are written in our scriptures. Whoever the sons of God were and whoever their children, the Nephilim, were, the point is the same, that God gives second chances even when things are downward spiraling hopelessly. That's what the story means. I have seen this in our world. I have seen people make bad, bad decisions with credit cards and God makes them a way to turn it around later and today they own their own home. I've seen people from bad families start their own really bad family but God makes a way for them to turn it around and they have peace in their home. I have seen people go to prison for grotesque crimes but God left them just a little hope 
and they took hold of it, and they sought recovery, and they sought wisdom, and they reached out to God with both arms, and he rushed to embrace them, and he gave them grace back. They didn't deserve it. I didn't deserve it, but we got it anyway, and we are grateful. I've seen it with my own child. So when I find out what what my kid had done for the second time, mm, mm, mm. I was ready to have the most righteous father fit of the century to let clearly be known that you thought you fooled me, but I am not fooled. You thought you'd been playing along and stringing me along, but you haven't stringed me nothing. You are not as clever as you think, and this is it. Everything you used to think was happiness is now over. Hide and watch. I mean, I had it all planned. It was the greatest speech ever. Epic, epic. And I, I, I just felt over the din of my rage, just a little Holy Spirit voice say, that's all fine. Just, uh, you know, talk to your wife first before you say all that. <laughs> thought, fair enough. She's kind of co-partner in this venture. And she's pretty good at one-liners too. Maybe she'll want to join in. So drove home in absolute silence. Just, you know, the kid's not there. Got home, pulled in the garage, just walked straight into the house, left the kid in the car. I got nothing to say to you. Went up, found my wife in the kitchen, gave her my epic speech. I'm ranting, I'm fuming, spits flying, I'm pacing a groove in the floor in the kitchen, and my wife lets me get about halfway through. She holds up her hand, she goes, stop it. And then she says, Have you ever sinned before? I said, you know I have. What's the point? She said, well, when you sinned the second and third time, did it mean everything before that was a lie, that all your intentions to follow God were fakery, that you were just putting him on, that you had no intention of ever changing, that you ought to be cut off and blown out of the water because it's all been a sham? Is that what that meant? No. So I went to my kid's room. I had wrath and I had now remembered the grace God had given me. So I thought I'd I'd go in with that. So I went in and I sat on the floor. I didn't say anything. My kid just erupted into tears and told the whole story and confessed the whole thing and said how they had seen God arranging for them to be caught and were thankful that it had happened that way and could now see what we were trying to say before about where this all leads and really wanted to change and do something different. And it's been different for a good long time now. And that was a turning point of everything. And what if I had gone into that room with the wrath instead of the grace? 
And this passage is the turning point of everything. Noah found grace with God. This covenant God's about to make with Noah, it's the turning point of everything. It's the turning point of this story of grace. This is like the first big covenant, right? Of many covenants to come until Jesus says, I'll give you the new covenant. Let me just expand this story further. What if God had come with the wrath? Now, I won't say, you know, I didn't say to my kid, I'm sorry you were ever born, but let's be really honest. It was floating around back there somewhere. Think all the fun we could have had if we didn't have these two running around making trouble. But right on the heels of that, I remember the grace of God who probably a couple of times thought, I'm sorry I ever made this <laughs> joke or two. But I'll go with grace. This covenant with Noah is about to be the turning point of everything. Now, I know some of you are going to say, uh, well, now there's a big flood coming and a bunch of people drown in that. <laughs> what about them? And I don't know what to say to you about them except don't be them. Don't be that guy who treated his children badly all the time they were growing up and now you're estranged and now you still won't reach out to them. You just keep the feud going. Call your children, list all your sins in detail and ask for their forgiveness. Oh, I know, they did some stuff too. They haven't been innocent. But as far as it goes with you, give grace and make amends and invite them home for Christmas before this flood strands you all alone. Don't be that gal who knows she's got a drinking problem, knows she's got a rage problem, knows she's got a spending problem and doesn't do anything about it. This church community offers help with any one of those things couple at least times a week the ark pulls in for you every week get on that ark before this flood comes to sweep you away those who are bound to you depend on you to take this second chance god is giving you and do something with it your children your spouse your boyfriend your girlfriend your parents all the people who love you depend on you to take this second chance and do something with it they are bound to you as all of creation is bound to you don't waste these extra years you're being given before the flood's coming and you can see it coming. Let's take this point that's been made in this ancient prologue to Scripture. Let's go to the end of Scripture and see if we don't find the same point there. Second Peter. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some people think of slowness, but He's patient with you not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And of course, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. It sounds the same. Noah got an ark. We have the cross. Same God who comes with grace. Same God who comes with grace. Now we're going to have a meal of grace, the Lord's table. If the servers want to come forward and prepare that, and the only question about the meal of grace today is, will you take it? Will you take it? We have bread because Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, there we are again. Humanity betrays God again. And on that very night that it's happening, Jesus takes bread and says, this is my body broken for you. I see what's going to happen. I let myself be broken for you anyway. I love you that much. So we tear off a piece of bread. 
We dip it in the cup because Jesus had a cup. He said, this cup is my blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. I see this all coming. I forgive you anyway. So we tear off that bread and we dip it in the cup. And then we, we, we eat it because we, we receive it into ourselves. We receive God's forgiveness. We need Christ to become a part of us. We need to become a part of him because it's the only way we're going to get through this. We don't have the strength to do what's right in ourselves or we would have already done it. We need Christ in us. And we need to be in him. And we need to know his forgiveness is offered. It makes it all possible. So, the question is, will you receive it? There are some who will have to say no today. Maybe it's just too soon to believe all this. You're just not sure. It's fine. You don't have to come receive this. This is about a moment of deciding. It's not about a moment of being coerced into doing something by groupthink. So, no one here is going to judge anyone. This is what this church was founded on, a place to come and decide. You need another week to think about it before you receive it? All right, but do think about it. And we do hope you receive it. So we come down, we tear off bread, we dip it in the cup. We go back down the side aisles and return. Will you receive it? Let us stand together and we'll start by praying the Lord's Prayer, a prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. It is not temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let us pray and then come forward if you're ready. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Amen. A uh, little liturgical lesson. When you hold your hands out, you're sending the blessing out. And when you hold your hands like this, you're receiving the blessing. So today, you can decide if you're more like, well, I need to receive a blessing today, or I've got blessings to share, or I don't hold my hands up for nothing. I hate that stuff. That's fine, too. <laughs> All right. So let us bless one another. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness and protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.